Support for KZSU comes from Modeler.com, a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com works with architects from architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products for their building projects. We at KZSU thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay, for our guest today. Please welcome Peter Borzak, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Pine Tree. Peter, um, Peter's a leader, company is a leader in acquisition development, leasing, and management of necessity-based retail properties throughout the United States with bases in Chicago and Dallas. For more information, you can visit www.pinetree.com www.pinetree.com Hello Peter, we're excited and honored to have you on The Modern Architect today. Thank you, happy to be here. Peter, I like to start the show with something funny, um, if you don't mind sharing with us. A fairly humorous situation, maybe even something that came about you know, on, on your way here that's happened recently and you're preferably professional, but could be personal, um, that you can share with our audience uh, anything that uh, may have been kind of funny other than me having to run in here out of breath trying to get my glasses? <laughs> uh, something funny that happened to me. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Maybe a... I spoke for you. <laughs> oh. do, do, do you do you know something that uh, did I just do something yeah. funny? That no, no, I didn't no. See? Uh, just an RS. I was I couldn't read my glasses. Every time I think I can get away with reading without them, I don't. And now it's getting you know I need them. So, anyway, I'm welcome, welcome, happy to have you here. Uh, what are some of your um, early inspirations to? Uh, pine tree you know maybe can you look back something even in, in relevant in your childhood as to understanding why you do what you do and as well as you do what you do um well i, I would say that uh my my dad's always been a big inspiration and a lot of the things that i learned in my life and a lot of the the things that i've i've tried to emulate have come from my dad so i would say that he's somebody who was in business there was a my family had a printing business that my grandfather started my my dad oh. took over and so Commercial uh, that printing. Was, yeah. it, they did, yeah, yeah commercial printing okay. and uh, and printed magazines and things like that and and uh, advertising inserts for newspapers and they used to print the Chicago Stage Bill magazines for for shows that came through town and so I would say that was probably one of the early influences. Yeah, yeah. We were talking earlier before we got on the show is you know um, how you got into real estate. And you sort of backed into it, but then it, obviously there wasn't enough curiosity to, to how you got started. When, when, how long have you been involved in uh, real estate, specifically specifically commercial real estate? 
So I graduated college in 1984 okay. and went right into the business. I was going to go into the family printing business, and the summer between my junior and senior year in college, I was enjoying being in the printing business and, and working there over the summer and was still a little bit troubled by the thought of just going into a family business where I didn't really have anything to prove and, and would never really know in my heart whether I could actually hold a job in the real world. <laughs> really? And so uh, a cousin of mine was was working uh, connected to the, uh, to the real estate business, and he okay. was the one who told me about the business and about what was uh, involved in the in the business and what it took to be successful. And I, I thought it sounded like something interesting. And so I got an internship my senior year of college and was was lucky to go to a conference and meet somebody who ultimately ended up hiring me out of college. Oh, really? So did you have to, was it a, a formal uh, interview or was it? It was a formal okay. interview. Yeah, it was a, actually a full day interview. And a day? was a, a whole day. day. Yeah, a whole day where you'd interview with about six different people and um, kind of terrifying actually <laughs> at the time at 22 years old. But uh, ultimately uh, got hired into a training program that they had, which was great because it gave me about a year and a half of almost like a graduate program in real okay. estate before I actually had to, to be productive or do anything. Oh, really? Were you were running around a little bit? You, you, would, you would spend two months in each different depart- in each of a, a bunch of different departments and, and so move oh, around I the like company. That. And okay. it would give you a chance to see uh, how, what different departments did and ultimately how the whole process came together and gave me a, a little bit more of a holistic view of uh, how the commercial real estate business, specifically acquiring properties, worked. So it was... A, a really valuable program. I'm, I'm not sure that it paid off for the company. I don't know that it was worth the time that they invested <laughs> over that year and a half, but it, it turned out to be a good thing for me. Anyway. Yeah. So you parlayed that into, when did you begin Pine Tree? So we started Pine Tree in 1995 okay. and had a partner when we started the company named Barry Herring, who's a spectacularly great guy. And we met uh, when when I was looking at acquiring a shopping center that he had developed and we developed a great relationship. And ultimately, we're business partners for 15 years. And he, during the downturn when things got very difficult, uh, bowed out and, and retired and is now running a hotel in Brown County, Indiana with his very large family, which has worked out well for him. But we started the company um, in 95 at a time when the economy was going pretty well. And uh, we, we had a good kind of yin and yang of skills and capabilities Okay. That, that worked well. Yeah. Uh, how was, which one was Yang and which one was Yang? So he had a lot of development experience, okay. meaning building properties from the ground up, which is a, a difficult, probably the most difficult part of the commercial real estate business, ultimately. And he also had more retail experience and understood the retail world very well. I came from a more general background and had more relationships in the capital markets and was more responsible for, uh, at that, in the early years, bringing in uh, equity and debt capital. Okay. So you bring in, de- explain a little bit to our audience with that. So uh, to finance uh, the acquisition of, of any kind of real estate, there is generally, un- unless for whatever reason you're buying something on an all cash basis, generally you would borrow some amount of money and then the rest of the investment would be in the form of equity capital. And so the the portion that you would borrow would be the debt amount, and that is generally in a preferred position. So it would be the first capital that would have to be paid back. And 
it is generally much less expensive than equity capital because it's in a preferred position. So it's more secure than equity capital. Okay. So it, it, during that process, how um, you've talked about something, and I'll touch on it again, is that it's interesting in the, the, the real estate market. It's residential and commercial is like a, what is it, a mile? Wait, uh, a mile wide and an inch deep? Yes. Yeah, I, I know you shared that with me, I th- but I think it'll be rele- relevant to our listeners if you, if you describe that so they have a reference. Yeah, and what I meant by that was that the, the commercial real estate industry has got a lot of components, and there are a lot of documents. It's a very document-heavy business. All of the transactions and all of the pieces of the business come together through a document of some kind. If you build a building... You will need a document to convey the property from the current owner to you as the new owner. You would need mortgage documents, which would document the debt that's in place. There would be generally partnership documents that would govern the equity capital and how the equity is invested and how the ownership is is split and how the decision-making process would work. If there is a construction uh, uh, requirement. There would be a contract with a general contractor. If there are tenants, which frequently there are, there would be leases in place. Everything needs to be documented. And there's a lot of terminology uh, and language around all the different components of the business. And it's it's there's a lot of material. Uh-huh. None of it is very complicated. None of it is rocket science. Uh, you could uh, t- mention this to you earlier. You could train a monkey to do all these things. It just would take a while. So it takes a while to be in the business and to really get your arms around all the different issues and all the different meanings and to be really fluent in the language. But none of those pieces are very complex at all. So what are, what are some of the challenges for anyone who's interested in commercial real estate, and specifically retail, that if they were to get it? Let's say now, now 2017, 2018, what are the challenges now if someone uh, chose after they graduate to get involved in, in commercial real estate? What would be some of the things, a couple of things that they would, they would find probably challenging? The, the mo- I think the most challenging thing right now facing commercial real estate is disruption, and that's probably true of all business. The pace of change right now is is fast and accelerating, and real estate is being disrupted at a very rapid pace, just like a lot of other businesses, and probably retail is being disrupted more than any of the other asset classes, and that's because the retail business is being disrupted at such a rapid pace. So the uh, advent of online shopping, the rise of Amazon as a, as a, a major force in the industry, and the changing shopping habits of consumers, all of those things are coming together right now at a certain point in time and creating a lot of change and a lot of disruption. And that is creating a lot of challenges. But with challenges come opportunities. Yeah, really. So even Amazon and all the online are impacting real estate, commercial real estate. A hundred percent. Yeah, it's, it's impacting especially the retail business to a large extent. And there are other factors that are disrupting other portions of the industry. The biggest disruptor that's on the horizon is the self-driving car. And that's the big variable that... Are you kidding? A self-driving car is the most potentially disruptable force in commercial real estate. Yes, absolutely. Got to go into it. I mean, really, that's just... I would never have thought that. so, So we'll go back to before the advent of the automobile and before the tipping point when the automobile became 
the thing that dictated the way that our uh, that our cities were being planned. So I, I would argue that urban planning during a lot of the 20th century was actually um, dictated by the automobile and heavily influenced by the automobile industry. So where highways were built and how cities were set up, uh, set up and the way that shopping centers were built and the way that uh, communities and office buildings and apartment complexes and, and, and other parts of urban planning all of those things were heavily influenced by the automobile and the whole uh, explosion of suburbia in this country is really a phenomenon of the car. So okay. I like it. That, that, that fundamentally changed the way that we built and planned cities. And, and I think you could make an argument that it didn't influence it in a positive way. It created a lot less connectivity and a lot more space in between where people lived and where they worked and people used their cars to drive long distances. And so communities like, let's say, Los Angeles that were largely developed after the advent of the automobile, mm -hmm. they were not developed in the same way as cities like New York or Chicago or Boston, which had a lot more connectivity and were, were, were planted at a different, at a different time. What people are craving now is more connectivity, and in some ways they are um, rejecting aspects of that suburban model, even though they're not rejecting all of the aspects, they are rejecting some of the aspects. And so uh, I, I, as we look forward, the whole concept of a self-driving car, of, of a car where you, you can be 100% productive while you're driving around in that car, and the fact that you don't necessarily need to park anywhere when you get to where you're going could fundamentally influence where people choose to live and how projects are developed. So wow. how, are, how are parking fields going to be used going forward? How much parking is going to be required? Do office buildings have to be built with huge parking structures? Um, will, will people choose to live farther from an urban core if the hour that they spend commuting is – 100% productive time, or will, will they not make those choices? I, I think the jury's still out on those issues. Yeah. And then there are all kinds of consequences that we can't even foresee uh, when, when that tipping point happens and when the self-driving car is, is, becomes the standard method of transportation. Wow. Yeah, have you seen any examples or semblance of examples of that somewhat occurring even now? The, the, any the examples, particular city or places? That no, I mean, we haven't seen any yet because the, the self-driving car is still in, in very early stages of adoption. It's not in early stages, though, in terms of technology. The technology exists, and it's going to be more a regulatory issue than a technology issue. It's going to be more a question of whether when governments are willing to allow self-driving cars to be moving around our streets more than it is the technology of um, that that that, uh, that already exists yeah. to drive a car around without you know human control, so uh, the 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 discussions that I hear around it are typically just early stage discussions, which are a little bit more simplistic and only looking at some of the very obvious uh, inf impacts, like not needing as much parking space. But, but I think there are a lot more un, uh, unforeseen consequences and unintended consequences that would start to result that will take this in a direction that none of us, or at least that I can't imagine just yet. Yeah. Do you think it's going to – is it negative, positive, or again, it's going to be how people respond? So I, I 
comes from you know the Buddhist concept of what is good and what is bad. I, I don't know if, uh, on a value yeah. judgment, but I think there will certainly be change. Okay, so there'll be change for it. If you can, if you can envision that, let's say that, that happened, we walk out of the studio and that has happened. How would your business model and how you, how you, um, yeah, how would your business model shift if you had to shift change that quickly? Would you? Are you? Are you? Are you positioned to do that? At least mentally. Yes, and, and I think we're still a little ways away. I've heard different estimates, and, and I've read different articles about when that tipping point will happen. But it's sooner than a lot of people think. Generally, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see enormous change in that, in that area. But we're still far enough out that it's difficult right now to plan a new project around the self-driving car when... A, it's, it's difficult to project how that is going to play out. And B, the investments that we make, we make with the expectation that we'll hold those properties for five to 10 years or so. It's difficult right now to try to tailor a project for something that you can't foresee. If, if, you, if you're wrong in, how you, in, in, in your guess as to how to tailor a yeah. piece of property for the self-driving car, you could end up holding that property for a long time. It could be a financial disaster before you ever determine the, the, uh, the, the reality. Excellent. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Modern Tech News from the Bay Area and around the world is a show on Wednesday mornings from 9 to 10 a.m. on KZSU, Stanford. It's technology news about space, energy, IoT, wearables, sensors, robotics, AI, high-tech innovations, and more. So if you want to learn more about self-driving cars and other advancements in the Bay Area, that's Modern Tech News, 9 to 10 a.m. Wednesday mornings. Now back to the Modern Architects. We're talking today with Peter Borzak, Chairman, CEO, and Co-Founder of Pine Tree, headquartered in Northbrook, Illinois. For more information, please visit www.pinetree.com. That's www.pinetree.com. Com. Peter, what type of projects are you working on? I know we really reached, and now it was interesting is that we reached um, with the self-driving cars and some of the impacts and the, and the, and the adjustments that are going to take place in commercial real estate. But right now for your business model, what type of properties do you look for? And what, what are the things you look for in that property to see it's, it's, it's viable for you, your company and your clients? Such so a great question and extremely relevant at this moment because there is so much disruption in the retail business and in the shopping center business, and there are a lot of questions surrounding where this is going and how the historic battle between the uh, e-commerce and online shopping and the, the more traditional brick-and-mortar shopping and brick-and-mortar retailers, how these two pieces are going to play out. And our belief, and, and I, I think this is uh, the belief of, of most of the people who are in the industry and who are really in touch with these trends is that that battle is now over. There is no more battle between e-commerce and brick-and-mortar shopping. There is simply retailing once again. And the retailing uh-huh. model that works is called, uh, generally called omni-channel retailing. And that is a combination of all of the multiple channels that exist so that a retailer can have a relationship with their customer keep their customer informed, express their brand, but also give their customer maximum optionality and a chance to personalize their own way of shopping. So if you want to shop in a store but be able to return 
by mailing products back. If you want to buy online, but be able to return the products in a store. If you want to go to the store, buy some products in the store, but then also order some products online that may not be in stock in the store. All of those things uh, are just giving the customer a chance to create the relationship on their terms. And then in addition to that, using social media and technology to, to continue to give the customer a, a greater uh, transparency to be more informed and, and also to be more in touch with sales and specials and other things. The smart retailers are adopting all of those channels right now at one time. And Amazon is a perfect example of that. The acquisition of Whole Foods is a very strong commitment on the part of Amazon to have brick and mortar retail. Amazon is also opening bookstores, which is interesting, physical bookstores, which is especially interesting since they disrupted the book <laughs> industry so badly. And they're also opening their own grocery stores, which, which they have in Seattle right now. So Amazon will likely become one of, if not the largest brick-and-mortar retail over the next 20 years. Amazing because, how that happens. Because they are, uh, they are more aware than anybody of how important it is to use all those channels. And just doing home delivery and just allowing shoppers to shop online is not enough. So <laughs> all of that, uh, to, to bring that full circle, we, we believe that there will be some consolidation in the retail business. And that consolidation comes from the fact that there are more options right now for customers. They don't need to buy everything in the store. And so there will probably be fewer shopping centers 20 years from now than there are today. You think so? so really? I, I do. That's what we believe. So what we're focused less, on right now. Less now than? Less shopping centers ultimately. Have you ever but, quantified a percentage? 10, 20%, maybe more? It, it, it could be. I think in the regional mall space. Uh, there yeah, are estimates that are much higher than so 50 20. even. Oh but my, that completely well, shifts. You're not disruption. That's a intrusion. <laughs> it, it is an intrusion. There, there, were, there were too many malls built, and the department store, the traditional full line, full price department store model, is antiquated, and it's not working right now. And that's why so many of those department stores are struggling. Not not all. Some are doing very well. But some are struggling, yeah. and the the trick is to continue to adapt and uh, with the time and and change and morph uh, along with consumer taste. Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, how how are you doing that? Just from your experience, you, you said a great word, many, but in particular, connectivity. How how are you think able to do that with all this disruption or interruption or uh, intrusion? We called it. Um, to make the connectivity even greater than it ever was, so that, that, that what was once lost can actually be found. Do you think that's possible? Yes, and, and we're seeing it right now in, in a lot of cities, uh, but we're also seeing it in, in, in the suburbs as well. And so what we're trying to do is focus much more on finding A locations and centers that occupy premier corners that provide convenience and are part of people's lives. So that, that's one of the ways that we think that the consolidation will not just create a problem industry-wide. We believe that the consolidation and the evolution is going to create winners and losers, ultimately. That so, clear cut? That yes. cut and dry? And, 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 and then in, in between the winners and the losers are a lot of properties that will have to just be reimagined and, and, and redeveloped and readapted, which, which they will. And a lot of the regional malls that are going to struggle or are struggling, 
are in very strong locations, in infill locations, and are sitting on very valuable property. So it's just a question of reimagining and redeveloping a lot of those properties. Yeah. Is there any area, particularly in the country, that you've found that are strong? Uh, you say regional regional malls that um, they are strong. Is it because of the value of the real estate or is it the, the density of the population? What is a factor in that? Those things as well as the, the quality of the retailers. So we were oh, just... Okay. yeah. So so there are a lot yeah, of Yeah, I have factors. an example around here since you've been here in the Bay Area, what, a couple days now? Yes, yes. So the mall that we were just at Oh, uh, Stanford Shopping Center. St- Stanford yeah. Shopping Center is a great example of a center that has evolved with the times and that was built decades ago, but has been redeveloped and reimagined constantly over time so that the retailers in that property are the most current, most successful, most relevant retailers and restaurants. And, and there is a, a great mix of users. And a lot of that revolves around the density of the, the, the population on the peninsula, the high incomes, the lack of land, the anti-growth politics that, that keep uh, extreme overbuilding. So there are a lot of reasons why that property is doing so well. And that's the kind of property that will continue to do really well. And my opinion of that is that it will be even more relevant and even more premium than it is today at the expense of the the property that is that doesn't have those same oh. dynamics. Okay, um, so can you mo- can that be modeled, or can you just uh, yeah can it be modeled um, the the formula, or can you try to yeah can you be modeled or even replicated so that you ensure or likely ensure that 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 economic dynamics come into play or will, will be it'll be worth it for everybody, the community, I, the developers, the landlords? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if it can be modeled exactly so okay. that there is a formula and you can create an exact replica of that. But there are elements that you will see in a lot of successful shopping centers, which which include, in, in that case, that the, the, the quality of the retailers that exist. Yeah. Take, it, the, take some of your examples, some of the properties that you've had that were not doing so well, but then when you took it over, you... Um, they they they're thriving. Can you have any examples? Yeah, yeah, uh, got a, a bunch of examples. Yeah. Um, we've got uh, a shopping center outside of Reno, Nevada, in uh, a small area called Sparks, which is a little bit north and, and east of Reno, and that was a project that was built at a time when uh, just before the downturn, when there was uh, housing growth in that area and the Reno economy was doing well, and that project, along with a lot of the Reno area, suffered after the downturn. Reno was very hard hit. We bought that project when it was uh, in in a, in a state of kind of financial disrepair. We bought it at a, about a third of the cost to that a third of what it cost to develop the property originally. And when we bought it, there was a lot of empty space. And what we've been able to do is lease up that space and create more energy by bringing in A-class retailers like Sprouts, um, Marshalls, Home Goods, other retailers, and and create more energy and create more synergy with the retailers and, and turn that around. And, and a lot of that has to do with the, um, the, the there's, a, there's a Tesla plant nearby where they make the batteries for mm-hmm. the Tesla yeah, cars. Right. Sparks is, is uh, the, the housing development has picked up again and it is becoming a much more vibrant economy right now. So uh, there's another uh, asset that we own in uh, outside of Denver, Colorado in a, a city called Arvada. 
and we're at a, a premium intersection where Interstate 70, the major interstate that goes through the Denver area, meets Wadsworth Road, a major north-south thoroughfare. And uh, in a similar way, we, we've redeveloped that property, created more expensive restaurant space along Wadsworth Avenue, brought in some uh, retailers to backfill spaces that were not as productive. So it's just a process. Yeah. So, so you've got that's those are just a couple of examples. So do they have the same pattern uh, of uh, disrepair when you did purchase them? That where you say you have that vision to say, oh, I know what this can be. Uh, I wouldn't say that the pattern was was similar. There, each situation is very unique, but there is a lot of judgment that's required, and so that that's one of the things that we try to bring to the the, the business is a lot of retail experience and, and judgment around it. So, uh, but but I'm not sure that there's a, a formula. Okay, is there such thing as a slam dunk? I'm really I'm not being totally exaggerating here, but is there a project where you go, oh, we know exactly what we can do with this? Or is it yes. always a challenge? Each one has got its own own vibe. I think, I think I would say each one has its own challenges and its okay. own kind of vibe. I, I, I'm not sure that there are certainly things that look like slam dunks <laughs> on, on the so outset, they like, but, they, uh, but they don't always turn out that way. Yeah. Now, we're talking about sports metaphors. And, and uh, you're telling me, how, how's the culture at Pine Tree that lends to all, you know, facilitating all this? I mean, is it... Uh, you know, how, how is the culture? Because it has to. I mean, you have great website. I love the insight, your vision, everything. That's obviously why you're here for our, our audience. What's the culture like in in your work environment that lends to this? The, the the culture revolves around having a lot of different skills and capabilities, and it's a very collaborative, very team oriented culture. And so, I get accused of using too many sports <laughs> metaphors accused, be, yeah. because we, we do try to operate as a team, and we use the word team uh, probably to excess, but we really try to bring all of these disciplines together in a very collaborative and harmonious way. And I, I think that people need to feel safe expressing themselves and safe expressing their opinions and being part of that process. So we, we try to encourage a team atmosphere, and we try to encourage people to be comfortable and uh, and and open to kind of the, the creative and process, but at the same time, always fearful because the stakes are very high, and mistakes are very costly, and so we believe that we have to have a healthy amount of fear <sighs> that coexists with a culture that allows people to enjoy their time at work. And that is a balance that uh, I'm not sure that you ever actually achieve, but it's a balance that we strive for. Yeah, you, you said a, a good word here, harmonious. How do you create a harmonious, you described a bit, but a harmonious um, environment in a pretty cutthroat environment? It's, it's a great question. And I, I think that we, we do our best to encourage people to get together outside of work. We have company events and we go, we work out together. We have different, uh, we'll, we'll go to sporting events. We'll, we'll go to, we'll have we'll picnics and things like, we, we, so we try to get people comfortable with each other and comfortable with the, uh, the, the culture at the company and also make sure that people never lose sight of the fact that there is a lot at stake, that <laughs> people have invested a, a lot yeah. of capital and we've made a lot of commitments and that we've got to be 
very sharp and on top of our game all the time. So try to get those two things to coexist. Yeah, how does that, the trust factor with uh, multiple clients, multiple people um, developing that trust factor? And um, I don't know if there's a one way to do that because in my opinion, trust is something you gain on a minute by minute basis. It's not like you're trustworthy and that's, you're good to go. It's a minute by minute basis, maybe even less second by second. So how, again, it's, it's such a, you know, the perception is, um, especially, especially commercial real estate, it is very cutthroat. Um, it's dollar driven and that's it. I think if people aren't involved that that's what they're perceiving, it's going to perceive. Whereas you're seeing the human element of it. How do you, how do you balance that? It's a great question. It's a great point. And one of the things that we talk about is the, the touches and that, to your point, touches, about the, in... the touches meaning every touch that we have with a stakeholder. And the stakeholders can be investors, lenders, sellers, oh, touches buyers. touches connection. Every, every, every touch, every interaction. Okay. So every phone call, every meeting, uh, every written piece of communication, every one of those touch points is an expression of your business culture, your brand, and you, those touches have to be considered sacred and have to be maximized. And so we try probably the, the, the best word, and this is a word that, that is definitely uh, relevant across all businesses, is transparency. Okay. So that's what we try to create in order to make sure that we earn that trust with every touch and with every one of those stakeholders. Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Kickstart is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to lift millions of people in Africa out of poverty quickly and cost-effectively and sustainably. Co-founded by Stanford alumnus Dr. Martin Fisher, Kickstart designs, promotes, and markets simple money-making tools that small farm smallholder farmers buy and use to start profitable family enterprises. You can help families permanently change their lives by contributing to Kickstart. For more information, visit kickstart.org. That's kickstart.org. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Peter Borzak, Chairman, CEO, and Co-Founder of Pine Tree, headquartered in Northbrook, Illinois, offices in Chicago and Dallas. For more information, please visit www.pinetree.com. That's www.pinetree.com. Peter, we're talking about uh, uh, sacred touches. I don't know if anyone would ever imagine anyone in commercial real estate or development or retail saying sacred touches. Go into that. I like that. I mean, that shows there's a humanity to this process. Definitely. The the business really operates on relationships and on trust. And part of that is because when someone is investing into your company or into a project, whether that investment is... Uh, providing capital in order for you to build or acquire a shopping center or investing by opening a business or a store or a retail operation in one of your properties. Any, any one of those kinds of investments requires trust and requires uh, a relationship that is ongoing. And so all of those touches and all of those communications and negotiations, whether it's an initial negotiation with a retailer to lease space in a property or uh, a subsequent negotiation for a renewal of that lease or uh, talking to an investor about coming into a shopping center that we think is worthy of investment. Those touches all 
serve to, to either help build the relationship or help tear it down. And it doesn't mean that all the news is always good, but how the information okay. is conveyed and the transparency and the, 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 the truthfulness behind it and the thoughtfulness, being informed, but also being humble and uh, collaborative with our stakeholders, all of those things help create a brand for us where we we would like to think that there is uh, it's 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 like basic karma that's out there so there's a reputation that your firm has and that that when people think of your company they would have a positive connotation and not not just positive that um they're they're big or they're they're whatever but more that they're they're trustworthy they are credible they are going to be fair and they're going to be thoughtful and they're going to work really hard and the, the only way that those things in the end are expressed would be through all of those touches. Yeah, so there's a, the human connectivity is just amazing. I never would have thought that really, in, especially in that. How does a policy of an area also affect your how you interact, say the policies of uh, the political environment in San Francisco versus uh, Dallas, Texas? Do you factor in those? Yes, definitely, especially okay. if we're looking to develop and we need government approvals for something, it, it definitely has a huge impact. So if, if you were going to try to build a new property in the Bay Area, you would have to know that the politics here are more difficult for development, that there are more uh, political hurdles to jump through. It's going to take more time and likely be more expensive. And time creates risk. So if it's going to take five years to develop a property instead of one year, then that adds significant risk to the process because over a five-year period, there are a lot more political, economic issues, hurdles that can pop up than in a one-year period. So there definitely is, is a, uh, we have to pay a lot of attention to the politics in an area and, and, and the general mood and general feeling towards growth or development. Really, does it also impact the financial outcomes of it? It, it definitely would. It would. It, it definitely would. Okay. You said, so, you said something interesting that time creates risk. Can you go in a little bit about that? Time creates risk. Sure. It's a unique the, term. I've, we've not heard of that. Yeah. There, just is, there are a lot of things that pop up over time that can cause uh, massive changes in an economic climate or massive changes in the value of a property. And so the, the, the farther out you need to plan the greater the risk is that there will be an event that will create some problem for you. And that can be a terrorist uh, attack. It can be a natural disaster. It could be a, an, economic, an economic cycle, uh, a recession in 2008, the, you know, the, the, the massive disruption to the economy, which, which caused so many projects to get derailed. That, those things they all they they happen over time. They they do. There is there is never a period of a long period of time that doesn't have significant issues that are unexpected. And so, um, the, the 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 farther out you have to look for a project, whether it's a development project or whether you're acquiring something, the the farther out your horizon, the more of those hurdles you will likely have to encounter. Yeah. Do you have to um, just uh, prepare for a downturn? sort of mindset i kind of operate that way uh, professionally is i'm preparing for a downturn not in a negative way but just like you know always be building yourself uh, use a sports metaphor you know you kind of work out and you get yourself fit so that you minimize your 
uh, not just your, you increase your performance, but you minimize your risk of injury. Do you do similar in that you, yes. in that sort of preparation? How, how would, yes. And I think it's just an assessment of the risk when you are going to acquire or develop an, a new property. And the best mitigants to risk in the real estate business are leases with creditworthy tenants that go for a long period of time, low leverage, meaning low debt levels, and the lower the debt level, the less obligation, the less financial obligation a property has on an annual basis. So if you buy a property and you borrow 20% of the the, the, if so, let's say you're, you're, you're buying a property for $100 million and you okay. borrow $20 million, your debt payment would be, would be fairly low. And therefore, sure. Sure. you can absorb some vacancy, you can absorb some problems in that project before you are at risk of losing it through foreclosure. If instead you borrowed $80 million, you would be at a much higher risk because your financial obligation to pay a mortgage on an annual basis is so much higher. And so... Even a, a small uptick in vacancy can threaten the project and could put you at risk of foreclosure. So buying good real estate, buying good uh, – we call it dirt. Dirt is a Yeah, I was going to go into that. What's your, the dirt? You, you yeah, the, so the dirt is a, is a buzzword for us in retail. And okay. uh, it just has to do with – when we talk about the quality of the dirt, we talk about the quality of a location to work for retail sales. There are certain pieces of dirt okay. that are just that don't lend themselves to uh, building a shopping center or building retail spaces because they don't have high traffic or there aren't traffic signals or there aren't a lot of people around. Uh, and then there are other pieces of dirt which are at very strong corners with a lot of traffic or at highway interchanges or uh, located someplace where um, it, it's very conducive to retail sales. So. Having very strong dirt, having moderate leverage, and having leases from uh, quality and credit tenants, those are significant mitigants against the time and the risk associated with the time. Yeah. Are there, are there s certain players, uh, not I mean certain players, like people that you, you've worked with on a consistent basis over, say, five, ten years that you continually transact with? Or are there new players in the game every year? Definitely some of both. Okay. And and in in how'd you experience say with the the uh, the traditional or or more ten tenured um, uh, players? So generally in in retail because it is a more insular community. Uh, so there are only so many retailers across the country, and the dynamics that impact retail and and that impact shopping centers or shopping. Um, shopping projects, retail projects, those dynamics don't change much from city to city or region to region. So a shopping center that we own outside of Portland, Oregon, behaves very similar to a project that we own in Denver or a project in Florida. Uh, and because of that, there it's a, it's a smaller community. People tend to know each other. And so for a lot of the established players that we deal with, they're, 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 they're good people. We know them. Frequently, we'll buy something from a company, and then the next year we may sell something to them. And so it encourages people to be uh, pretty good citizens. I think generally that okay. is the case with, uh, with our business. It's, there's a lot of really good people in the industry. So it, how about the newcomers? Now, how do you deal with them? Through the same vetting process or no? There's a whole different uh, vetting process the, for them. There, there's, there's, a, there's a different vetting process just because you need to get to know them a little bit. 
Really? Yeah, but not, but not, but not usually hard to find out. Is it, is it more time, which costs money, or is what, what would be the challenge in in dealing with a a newer person or newer company? Yeah, it probably depends on the nature of the transaction. About you know how much research would we have to do, and how much do we really have to know about them before we transact? Different different kinds of transactions might be less complicated or, or, or require less commitment, where you might not need to do as much homework. So it's a di- is it's a difficult game to get into in essence. I, I, then I say uh, doing a, a, a writing a new app. It's definitely more difficult than writing a new app, okay. and it's definitely more capital intensive. And, and that's one of the, you know, maybe that's a positive, maybe it's also a negative to the business. Um, there, there aren't a lot of barriers to entry, uh, if you know how to code, to coming up with a new software product or a new app or, uh, um, you know, some kind of new technology. Um, in, in, in our business, there is a lot more capital required. But I, I, I would say that Sometimes that barrier is a good thing because the, the people in the industry have been doing it for a while and are m- more professionals. Okay, so it's, it's the, it, the, the people don't come and go quite as much as. So, if a ball player say he's retiring and he says, "You know what? I really love retail, commercial real estate," and he wants to get involved. Sure, he may have made a. Uh, a good a fair amount of money through his career. Could they just get involved or no? He's going to need the players, the attorneys, the, the people who know it. Just because he has capital doesn't mean he's going to be able to get in, in the commercial re- retail real estate game. Or, yeah, he can. No, I would say generally you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's not that easy to get in. I'll tell you two, as long as you're bringing up athletes, I'll tell you two athletes who have done extremely well. One is Magic Johnson, mm-hmm. who has had uh, a series of funds that have invested in urban areas, but also has uh, created, it was involved in movie theaters and Starbucks and others. So Magic Johnson has been a major player in the industry. The other one is Roger Staubach, who created an extremely successful brokerage company, which is now owned by JLL. But he was one of the real great success stories. So they can get in it, but they have to have the capital to get into it. Yes, Okay, so yes, even though they don't have the players, the knowledge, the experience yet, they have to at least have the capital to get in the game. And the capital, what would you say, $20, 30000000 million, depending on the property, of course? But, well, yeah. We'll just de- use the Bay Area, for example. Yeah, it also depends on Roger Staubach's model was more service-oriented, so he created a, a brokerage model that was then expanded na- uh, nationally. And R- Roger Staubach, ultimately, that company transcended his name and his reputation Very as an much athlete. so, it did, yeah. And, and he, he developed a company that just had a great reputation as a real estate company, like Magic Johnson's company. Yeah, so Magic's obviously evolved into ownership of sports franchise or entertainment, correct? Yes. So is that a natural progression, or it could be? Could be. Okay, so that's where he obviously came from, so he's comfortable with it. But to get to that point, he needed to, without, uh, without the commercial real estate in uh, um Understanding or experience, the likelihood of becoming an owner of a sports franchise is probably not there. You kind of think so? There have been a lot of real estate people who own sports franchises. Very tr- yeah. DeBartolo, uh, Spanos, San Diego Chargers, among others. There, there are others as well. So that could be a natural progression or it's just kind of part of the, hey, this could be fun. Uh, Stan Kroenke, who owns the uh, the Rams and the Denver Nuggets, was uh, is related to the, the Walton family of Walmart, and Stan Kroenke was a major developer of shopping centers. And so there, there, there are a lot of connections 
with yeah, those two I would, worlds. I, I would think so. And we talked a little bit about sports ownership in that in order to do that and to have it to be consistently successful, the owner has to have a bit of a warmth to him, a human warmth, because you're dealing with players and you know, the whole thing. There's a, there's, a, there's a feel to it, even though it's very... What's the lack of a better word? Cutthroat, you know, and you know you're not good. You're good. We don't want you. Whatever reason, it's it's there. Still has to be a general warrant in order to want to have a sports franchise. But do you think that there you're seeing the correlation between having uh, experience in commercial real estate, whether it's retail, industrial, whatever it is, that you're able to parlay um, the resources that you've gained from that into a sports franchise or into any other, even a political arena. Yeah, no, I, th- I think there is there is be- because the real estate business is so relationship oriented and because the business is not yeah. it's it's not I'm seeing the connection. Now. And then there's that word again, connectivity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it definitely is. Okay. It, it, it's definitely a business that is first and foremost, it's a relationship business. And that is how deals get done. And that is how business is conducted is through relationships that are that are very personal and and that that really is across the industry from whether you're a broker or a lender or an investor or a developer whatever role you play the relationship side of the business is going to be a critical component excellent once again excellent this is the modern architect kzsu 90.1 fm stanford if you and your coworkers or friends are hungry for a meaningful volunteer opportunity you can lend a hand to help feed families with critically ill children through the Megabytes program at Ronald McDonald House in the Stanford Bay area. Megabytes engages volunteer groups of up to eight people who prepare and serve dinner to up to 123 families staying at the house. Each group makes tax-deductible donations of up to $600 to offset the cost of ingredients for the upcoming meal. You'll help feed families for an average of about $2 per person. Visit rmhstanford.org for more information. That's rmhstanford.org for more info. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Peter Borzak, Chairman, CEO, and Co-Founder of Pine Tree, a retail-focused commercial real estate development company with bases in Chicago and Dallas. For more information, you can visit www.pinetree.com. That's www.pinetree.com. Peter, are there any suggestions or recommendations you would have for uh, an aspiring uh, retail commercial development uh, uh, person or someone who's interested in getting into the field from say anywhere from zero to they're already loaded they came up with their app and they don't know what to do with their money (laughs) what would you suggest or recommend or detour (laughs) well um one of the things that that i I think is interesting about this moment in time is we mentioned earlier uh, the, the number of disruptors that exist and how fast the pace of change is right now. I think there's a lot of room for innovation in our industry and innovation has been rewarded in a lot of cases. Uh, specifically in the retail industry, retail is being uh, bifurcated right now in some ways between kind of convenience and price on the one hand and on the other hand, experience. And experience has become a really critical buzzword in our industry where it it, it still was a factor 10, 20, 30 years ago, but it was not as as much of a focal point. But creating an experience for a customer, creating space that's interesting, creating 
the right ambiance, the right mix of, of entertainment and, and, and food and beverage, especially. And food and beverage is, a, is another part of the entertainment uh, mix in retail that's much more important now than it ever was in the past. Really? And, and part of that more is so now? Much more so now. Oh. The, I, I, I don't remember the statistic and I don't remember what the source was, but, um, but I read that last year was the first year that Americans spent more money at restaurants than they did on groceries. So eating out and drinking out has become a much more uh, important part of the human experience in the United States. And so having entertainment and food and beverage and creating an experience in a retail property is, that, yeah. is, is something that's taken on just increased significance. So that would be something where I, I think there is a lot of room for innovation. And there are a lot of places now where younger people can have a vision about uh, about a concept or a, uh, a, a an idea behind a project that may not be as obvious to people who are already in the business and who are already constrained in their thinking about uh, the <laughs> yeah. way that the things are built. So I think it's actually a good time for people to be getting into the industry, especially creative people who who have a vision and who have an idea about what what could work and what would you know. What's a place that they would like to be? What's a place that they would want to create, that they would want to spend time? Yeah, so generally, innovation is not something that would be frowned upon or or, uh, or dismissed in, in your industry. It, it wouldn't be. It, the risk is that innovation in an app, to, something we were talking uh-huh. about earlier, the risk of coming up with an app that doesn't work is um, some time. And, you know, I, I don't know how much expense. I'm, I'm, I'm not a coder, but I... The, the risk of building a project that ultimately doesn't work is much greater. So the, the, the balance is getting the capital that's willing to take a long-term risk and make a long-term bet because properties are generally developed for a long period of time and having enough conviction behind an innovative idea to take a chance and to put capital behind it and, and actually build the project. Yeah, do you foresee in your industry or even your company is uh, looking at an app that's re- that's relevant to your industry and actually investing in that. Have you seen that? Or? In an app? Yes. Either an app and a program and a in a in a software. Yeah, whatever it is. No, it's a it's a great and very relevant question right now because our industry has been uh, slow to incorporate technology and a lot of that is because of the the relationship nature, but uh, even on the operational side the software products that have been available to us as an industry have been very limited. So we're still using spreadsheet technology. We still use Excel, which is a program that came from the, the early spreadsheets of the 1970s. It's For major bit, projects even? It, absolutely. Really? Yeah. And so that's a little bit a little bit crazy. But there are now more technology players in our industry that are developing new products for uh, for analyzing potential acquisitions and also for operating real estate. And so uh, we're, we're, we're trying to incorporate a lot more of those. The other area, though, that's, that's uh, being discussed a lot, and we have not seen a lot of answers for this, is how to incorporate big data in making decisions about investment. So can you use big data? Can you use technology more effectively in making investment decisions versus the current way that we do it in the business, which is through experience and gut feel and a lot of um, metrics like uh, like traffic counts and population and, and growth and, and, and other 
um, of those kind of granular elements that we use to consider. Will people be able to incorporate big data and technology and say, uh, this, this technology, kind of the money ball approach, this technology is pointing to this site right here as a great site for an office building. And then would we have enough conviction, would anybody have enough conviction to actually build that building based solely on the output from an algorithm? And that's something that we haven't seen yet, but that may be in our future. That's awesome. Peter, it's been great having you as our guest today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having the me. The time flew really quick. There are a lot of questions I'd love to have. So hopefully you consider coming back again so we can answer some of these. We're truly honored. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Today's guest on The Modern Architect radio show and podcast has been Peter Borzak, chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Pine Tree, a leader in the acquisition, development, leasing, and management of necessity-based retail properties throughout the United States with bases in Chicago and Dallas. For more information, you can visit www.pinetree.com. That's www.pinetree.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, influencer, and civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Jaggi. Assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Thank you for tuning in today. Listen in again next week at 10 a.m. for another edition of The Modern Architect. Support for KZSU comes from Modeler.com, a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com works with architects from architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products for their building projects. We at KZSU thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.